Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing love and grace. We sing songs of praise, honoring you, as we think about just how faithful, how gracious, how good you are. Father, we pray today as we delve into your word and as we look at this passage and as you open up the passage to us today, we pray that we will see again just how good you are, how flawed, weak, sinful we are, and yet how much you love your people and that we would just again be amazed by you and that we would respond with more faith and also more worship unto you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're in the book of Philippians today, um, and for the month of March, I thought it would be appropriate to just stay in, a, in chapters 2 and 3 a little bit of the book of Philippians to think about uh, some of the things that um, the Apostle Paul writes to obviously the Philippian church and obviously now to us. And in the book of Philippians, you know, it's, it's a letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, and he he at the time is in prison. So he, right now, he, he wants to be with the Philippians, but he's unable to because he is probably in Rome. He is in prison. He is unable to be with these people that he loves so much. He planted this church. He ministered to these people. There is a relationship, and there is a lot of love. And so he writes this letter to them because he wants to minister to them, but obviously he's unable to. And when you look at chapter 1, there's some of the words. You see how much he loves Philippian church. You know, in verse 3 of chapter 1, he'll say, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And he'll say in verse 7 of the same chapter, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So these are very strong words Apostle Paul writes. And so he clearly loves this church. He clearly loves the people in this church. And there's actually a lot of good things he says in the book of Philippians about them. He commends them. However, in chapter 2, one thing we see here is that there was some issues in the church. And obviously, there is no perfect Christian. There is no perfect church. And so, obviously, there are going to be some flaws. There are some things that they need to work on. And 
there is a place for correction, for rebuke, obviously. And in this chapter, Paul is addressing something. He addresses some division. He addresses maybe a lack of unity, some disunity, perhaps some fighting that is going on in the Philippine church. And so in the context of that, as he is addressing a problem, he talks about what the Philippine church needs, and he talks about how to get this thing. And in the process of that, we see verses you know, really 6 through 11, just an amazing hymn, right? amazing song of praise. People call it a song of Christ, a hymn of Christ. We kind of sang some version of that today during praise today when we sang Hail to the King. And Paul just gives us this beautiful passage as he's addressing an issue in the Philippine church. And I think it's an issue that maybe we might have as well in our churches today. So I want to really look at this passage today in three headings. Number one, the problem. Number two, the solution. And number three, the how. Right? The problem, which is the disunity you know, caused by selfish ambition and vain conceit. The solution, which Paul talks about, is really love and humility, looking to the interests of others. And lastly, the how. How do you get the solution, which is obviously verse 6 through 11, which we will see is really looking into, at Christ more and more. And so let me look at those three points today and kind of go through this passage. And the first thing is the problem. Now, if you look at this passage, he starts Philippians 2 by saying, for, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participate in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he's talking about unity. He's saying if you have encouragement in Christ, if you have comfort from love, participate in the Spirit. So pretty much he's saying if you are saved, if you know Christ, if you have find comfort, if you have fellowship in Christ with the Spirit, if you have all these good things, he says complete my joy by being unified having the same mind, having the same love. And obviously he's writing this because, and we see it in the context of the rest of the book as well, there has been some disunity. They're not always of the same mind. They're not always having the same love. And so he's addressing a problem of disunity, some quarreling, perhaps some fighting. And he says, I want you to be together. Right? I want you to be of one mind. I want you to really love each other. I don't want you to fight. I don't want you to be disunited or to have disunity. But he then goes to verse 3, and he kind of gives us a picture of maybe why there's disunity, of why there's some quarreling going on. And in verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. If you look at verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So really, what is he saying? He's saying, what is the reason for the lack of unity? What is the reason that you don't have the same mind or have the same love? It's because of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Now, you hear the word selfish ambition. It seems pretty self-explanatory. It's selfishness, right? self-absorption, right? self-centeredness. Obviously, when we are selfish and we don't care about others and we want what we want, that often will lead to fighting, right? That it's really in any relationship, whether it's family relationship, romantic relationships, right? Parent-child relationship, friendships, church, 
when people are selfish, there's selfish ambition, and there's a lot of self-centeredness, self-absorption, obviously, if I want what I want and you want what you want and we disagree, there is going to be disunity, obviously. But then he uses a second word here called, which is translated either conceit or vain conceit. And this is a, it's a, it's a little harder word, I think, to translate. And literally, it means empty glory, right? So sometimes people translate vain glory, but it's saying empty glory. Now, obviously, the translation is not going to write that because none of us would understand what that means. So that what does that mean? What does it mean for glory that is empty? And among other things, it means to be starved for validation and approval. It means that I am not assured of my significance or my value. I'm starving for respect, for honor. I'm insecure, right? It means maybe I feel like I don't matter. I don't count. And so Paul is saying, why do you have disunity? Why do you fight? Why are you not of the same mind? Why are you not of the same love? Well, obviously, because you're selfish. You're not looking out for others. You're, just only, you're only looking out for yourself. But it's also because of this feeling, this vacuum that you have inside of you where you feel empty and you want to get significance. You want to get approval. You want to have more worth. And yet, you don't, maybe you don't feel it. You don't feel fulfilled in that sense. And hence, the way you are acting is obviously selfish, but also the way you're acting is, in many ways, affected greatly by the emptiness you feel, the desire for worth, the desire for respect, the desire for significance that you feel you're not getting, and so you want more of it. And in that desire and in that selfishness, the emptiness, the selfishness is leading to fights. <clears throat> it's leading to disunity. It's leading to not being of the same mind. Why? Because it's, it's about me. It's about me, and it's about me. And obviously, in order for us to have unity, it has to be a lot more about you and a lot more about us, and ultimately, it has to be about God. So we have to look up vertically with love for God. We have to look around us with love for our brothers and sisters, and there has to be an us, a love for us as a community in the Lord, worshiping together, that's how you get unified, where we are looking at God together and worshiping him together. But what's going on? I'm being selfish. I'm looking at myself. Right? He's saying, I feel empty. I feel a certain vacuum. I want respect. I want significance. And I'm going to do what I can to try to get it, even if it negatively impacts you. And hence, there is fighting. There is disagreements. There's a lack of unity. Now, you hear that, and maybe you might say, you know what, that, that doesn't affect me, or that doesn't affect us. Maybe you think, I'm not selfish, we're not selfish, I don't feel empty, I feel full all the time, right? I feel content. Or, maybe if we're being honest, we would say, there is often disunity, even in our own church, in our own families, in our relationships. There is often sometimes fighting, disagreements, selfishness. And perhaps it's because, obviously, our selfishness, but also because perhaps we also, like some of these Philippians, 
maybe we also feel a certain sense of emptiness, a certain sense of lack of significance, a certain hollowness, a certain vacuum, and I want to be validated. I want to feel like I am valued and significant and respected and honored, and because I feel like I'm not getting it, perhaps we also sometimes, it leads to fighting, or it leads to disunity. It leads to maybe more selfishness, more self-aggrandizement or self-absorption. So maybe it's about me, me, and me. And so Paul then goes from the problem, and he says, all right, well, how do you solve this? Or what is not just the problem, but what is the solution? And this actually reminds me, I was thinking about this, it reminds me of when I was, I remember in grad school, we were learning different types of therapies, you know, in counseling and psychotherapy and things like that. And I remember just learning about like cognitive behavior therapy and narrative therapy and family system therapy and all these different therapies. And one that made me think was called solution-focused therapy. And it's been a while, I don't remember exactly everything, but what the main takeaway for me when, I talk, when they talked about solution-focused therapy was don't just focus on the problem. A lot of times we focus on the problem that you have and how to like get to the root of the problem and how do you then you know, work that all out. And this therapy was really about, let's, let's focus on the solution. What is the solution that you want? What is the goal? It's very goal-oriented. Where do you want to get to? What do you want your life to look like? And then let's focus on how to get there. I remember thinking that it was interesting. It was kind of a different approach. And here Paul lays out the problem, obviously, but then he kind of shares with us, well, what is the solution? What is the goal? Where do we need to go to get unity, right, to be a one mind and a one love? And it says in verse 3, we read it, the first part, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but then he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He uses the word humility here, in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. He continues in verse 4, that each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He said, what is the solution? Obviously, it's love. It is humility. He says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, that each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's saying, be humble, have humility, and just don't think about just you, 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 right? or me, 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 I should say, but I need to think about you. Don't just think about my interests. Think about others' interests. Think others more significant than myself. And he's saying, be humble. Now, what does that mean, to be humble, right? to have humility? Interestingly, it's actually a word that you don't necessarily see too often in other literature in, you know, in the Greek, but it's a word that I guess simply would mean gentle, modest, if you want to translate it, but it's, it's a word that in that culture was not elevated. So in their culture, to be gentle, to be modest, that sense of humility was not something that was a value that was like was supposed to be a great value. It wasn't supposed to be something that we should all you know, try to merit or try to get there. It wasn't a goal that I had to be humble. That wasn't really the point. So if you read, you know, Greek philosophy like Aristotle, Plato, like, and you talk about different virtues, humility really isn't there. That's not one of them. Because in this culture, you want a power, right? You want a significance. You want a respect. And so 
the idea of gentle, modest humility was really more for the servants, more for the slaves, almost looked down upon. And yet, Paul, he flips this here, and he, he elevates it, and he says, you want humility in your life. Now, what does that mean? And I think one aspect of this is this. When he talks about humility here, I think the implication is that if you have humility, then you're not going to feel empty. Because he just talked about, right, why are you having disunity? Because you're selfish and because of your vain conceit or your empty glory, of your emptiness that you feel. And so he's saying humility, if that's a solution to that, that means it obviously means you're not going to be as selfish if you have humility, but also he's saying you're not going to be as empty. You're not going to be feeling a vacuum and needing to get significance. He's saying humility will solve that. And so I think it's, let me give an example. I think it's kind of like this. When I'm hungry, I just think about food, right? So I remember when I was younger, I think I was in uh, middle school, high school, is when I first started fasting. And I know fasting was supposed to be about I'm not going to eat so I could really focus not on food or worldly things. I want to focus on God, and I want to pray. That was the idea of fasting. But I remember I told my parents, they're the ones that made me fast. I said, Mom, Dad, I don't think fasting is working for me. They said, why? They said, because I think, I think that point of fasting is to look more at God. But when I'm fasting, all I think about is food the whole day, right? Because I'm hungry, and so I keep thinking about food. And that's, I think, generally what happens. Obviously, hopefully, when we fast now as adults, you know, if you do fast, hopefully we wouldn't do that. We will focus on the Lord and feel closer. But when, I, when I'm hungry, what do I think about? I think about food. If I'm hungry and I walk by a restaurant and I smell that food, I want to go into the restaurant. That's just the way it is. You're hungry. But if you're full, if I just ate a good meal, if I'm content and I walk by food, I don't feel that pull, if that makes sense. I'm not thinking, well, I guess that's not true. Some people, I think about food no matter what, right? But hopefully, if I'm well-fed, and if I have contentment, if I'm full, I'm not hungry. Then I'm not thinking about food. I'm not drawn to food. Why? Because I feel good. And so I can focus on other things. In the same way, I think what Paul is saying is if you have humility and there's a certain fullness that comes from that, then you're not going to be so selfish and you're not going to be so feeling empty. It's about me, 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 and I can actually look at you. I can look beyond myself because there's a certain fullness that comes from humility. Well, so then, what is humility? What is gospel humility? Uh, I have a quote here that I want to read before I make it a little more simpler because I actually liked it. So a quote here that from, I believe from Tim Keller from his book, uh, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He says, gospel humility is not needing to think about myself not needing to connect things with myself. It is the end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. Here's the thing about humility. When we hear that word, I think generally we think humility just means this. I am not good at anything, right? So, I, you know, obviously I, I grew up Korean-American, at least in the Korean culture. I remember thinking humility was acting as if I'm not good at anything. So somebody says, oh, you sing well. 
oh, no, 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 right? Like, I don't sing that well. Oh, you're so smart. Oh, no, 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 I'm not that smart. But inside you're thinking, yeah, I'm very smart, right? But you don't want to say it because you, you don't want to look a certain way. So I remember uh, visiting my parents in Korea in college, and I met this, you know, this, this other college student, and she was a piano major, and supposedly she was really good at the piano. And so because I heard all this good stuff, and I met her, I said, oh, I heard you're so good at piano. And the first thing she said to me was, oh, no, no, I'm not that good. So I got confused, being this American I was. And I said, but I heard you won this achievement, and you got this, and you did this, and you went to this school. And I gave her all these accomplishments that I heard from my parents. And she looks at me, she smiles, and she says, you know, in our culture, we don't like to say we're good at anything. So I said, oh, but you think you are good at it? She said, yes. And that was that conversation. But that's what we think of humility, right? Oh, I'm not good. Oh, you know, don't, please don't compliment me. And really, gospel humility is not, I think one person, it's a quote, one person put it this way, he says, gospel humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Right? I really like that quote, right? Humility, gospel humility, is not thinking less of myself, thinking I'm not good at anything, it's thinking of yourself less. It means I'm not so focused on myself. Because what is pride? What is selfishness? What is self-centeredness? It's all about me. So when I feel an emptiness, and when I have empty glory or vacancy, what happens? I feel hollow. I feel lack of significance. So I just want people to acknowledge me, and I want to figure out a way for people to say, you're great. I want to get the attention. It could come out as pridefulness, boasting about myself, because I want people to know I'm good, or it could come out as insecurities, always saying I'm terrible at everything. And again, what do I want? I want comfort. I want people to acknowledge me, and it's all about me. And Paul is saying, you want humility, which means it's not about me. I don't want to focus on myself, what I want, what I need. The focus should be on God. The focus should be on others. And so again, humility is thinking, not thinking less of myself, but thinking of myself less. Which is why I think you can never ask somebody, if you think they're humble, what is the secret to your humility? Because I think the moment they start talking about it, they probably will no longer be humble, right? It's a hard thing. And so humility is, simply put, I think as Keller puts it, self-forgetfulness. It's not being so focused and wrapped up in me. It's ability to look at others, to look to God in worship, to look to others with love. But how? How do I do that? How do I have this kind of humility? It's hard. You can't. I'll tell you one thing we cannot do. I can't say, I'm going to be humble. That would never work. Right? I can't say, Lord, today I have made a new resolution in my life. I will now be humble. It's not going to work. You can't will it. Because think about it. At best, I could try to not think about myself and, then, and try not to think about myself. What am I doing? I'm thinking about myself. In trying not to be prideful, again, I'm thinking about myself. It becomes about me. And so you can't declare today's my humility day, that I'm going to be humble from now on. It doesn't work. So how do I get that kind of humility? And this is why Paul writes this hymn of Christ. He says, what you want 
to have humility. You want to look at others' interests, not just yourself. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 6, he has this beautiful hymn. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God or think to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he goes on. But what is Paul saying? Paul is saying this. If you don't want to be selfish, if you don't want to have vain conceit and empty glory that leads to disunity and fighting, he says you need a humility that allows you to look to others' interests, a humility that allows you to be full so you're not always so empty and wanting the significance and trying to be selfish about it. And how do I do that is when I focus and I meditate and I look at my amazing and wonderful Savior in worship. See, there's three movements in this, in this you know, hymn. There's the, the incarnation where Jesus, even though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, I think to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It does not mean he was no longer God. He was still divine. He was God, but he emptied himself and he became human. He was the God-man. He was 100% God, but also he was 100% man, and he became a servant. That's the incarnation. But then he moves to the second movement here, the atonement. What does he do? Not only does Jesus humble himself and become a man, a servant, but he then, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So think about that for a second. What is Paul saying? Think about your Savior. You want humility? Look at the ultimate model of humility, our Savior Christ. He is God. And he became man. A weak analogy to that, to me, would be a CEO of a huge, powerful company like, I don't know, like Google or Amazon or Apple, and that CEO decides, I'm going to be an intern, right? And I'm going to get everybody coffee and do all the brunt work. We would all be like, whoa, what are you doing? That's crazy. And that's a weak analogy because it's nothing compared to the fact that God became a man, not a king. He was born in a manger. He was born to Joseph and Mary, who were not impressive people in the world, and he became a servant. Then, if that's not enough, he then goes to the cross. He dies a horrendous death on the cross, and he goes to hell itself, being forsaken by his own father at the cross for the sake of his people. And then, verse 9, what happens after that? We see the exhortation. We see the incarnation, the atonement, and then the exhortation where Jesus is resurrected, the resurrection, the ascension. He is at the right hand of the Father, and one day he will return, and every, every niche will bow in heaven and earth. On heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what do we see here? What we are seeing is a picture of Christ, the ultimate example of humility. He who be, God became man, took the form of a servant. He was so humble that he even went to the cross to die the death that his people deserved. He went to hell itself. 
And now what happens after that is he is resurrected, he is exalted, he is with the Father, now he will return and every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And he, what does Paul say? You want to be humble? See, stop looking at yourself. Look at Christ. He's saying worship Christ. Be amazed by just the splendor of your king. Be amazed by his humility. Be amazed by who he is and all that he has done for you. And as you look at Christ more and more, his humility, his exhortation, and you are amazed by him in worship, what's going to happen? See, your heart's going to change. It's going to stop being about you, 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 and it's going to be about God. It's going to be about Jesus. And then... It's going to be about the people around you. He's saying there's going to be a transformation that happens in your heart when your life is no longer about looking at yourself, but about looking at your Savior. See, that's, the, that's how you get the solution. That's how you get true humility. And I look at this passage. You know, I love this passage. It's a passage I've read many, many times. That song, Hell to the King, that came out when I was in high school. Makes me feel so old. <laughs> and I remember singing that so many times over my life, whether with my own guitar or just obviously the praise times. And I was really hoping Abe would pick that song when I gave him the passage. And thank you, Abe, for doing that. But it's a reminder, this passage, of how amazing our Savior is. But when I'm amazed by him, his humility, his exhortation, my heart changes, and I just want to worship him, and I want to love others in humility as Christ has loved me. That's what happens. And so my hope and my prayer is that as a church, as we see his humility, but also as we see the Father's faithfulness, Christ wasn't just, you know, he didn't just die on the cross. What happened? He was exalted. And so we realize when I live a life of humility and love, it doesn't end there. Right? God loves me, and one day I will be with him in glory for eternity by worshiping him. And it's going to be awesome. I'm going to be one of those tongues, right, just confessing Christ as Lord in heaven for all eternity. And it's going to be a glorious thing. And as I think about Christ's humility, but also as I think about God's faithfulness as he loves his people for eternity, I pray that as a church, we will stop looking at ourselves, that we wouldn't be selfish or empty of our glory, but we will look at Christ and we will become more and more humble, more and more loving, and more and more glorifying of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for you are good. You are so good. We thank you that though we are so weak and so flawed, you love people like us. We are so thankful that Christ took the form of man and came as a servant he humbled himself to the point of obedience to the cross, that he is exalted, that we desire to proclaim 
his name, we desire to confess that he is Lord, and we desire to live a life of gospel love and humility as well. We thank you. We praise you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.